This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. Our topic on this edition of the program, will the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man at the hands of police officers in Memphis, Tennessee, be the catalyst that triggers nationwide police reform? Why are African-American men disproportionately singled out and affected by police killings, even by black officers, as in the case of Tyree Nichols? Why do these deadly incidents tend to occur at routine traffic stops? Why has there been such little or uneven progress at the federal and state levels in reforming policing in America? Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. In contrast to previous incidents of police misconduct and use of excessive force, the five former Memphis police officers in the Tyree Nichols killing were swiftly fired and charged with murder. But analysts say much more must be done to stop fatal encounters with law enforcement, despite repeated calls for change, especially after the death of George Floyd almost three years ago. As he was boarding Air Force One last week, U.S. President Joe Biden explained his outrage at seeing the video of Tyree Nichols' beating, which has circulated around the world. President Biden and other lawmakers and civil rights advocates argue that real and lasting change will only come if we act to prevent such tragedies from happening again. President Biden called on Congress to send the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act to his desk for signature into law. The bill, which would ban chokeholds, end racial and religious profiling, eliminate qualified immunity for law enforcement, establish national standards for police departments, and promote investments in community-based policing programs, among other vital reforms, was blocked by Senate Republicans in the last Congress. Joining me to talk about the obstacles to police reform and to what extent the Tyree Nichols case could prove a tipping point, we welcome two distinguished analysts. Chuck Wexler is executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum, a Washington-based organization of law enforcement officials and others dedicated to improving the professionalism of policing. Mr. Wexler has been involved in crime reduction and policing projects in the United States and around the world. And Ganesha Martin, she is an expert in police reform and public safety, currently vice president of public policy and community affairs at a leading public safety software company. Ganesha Martin previously served as director of the mayor's office of criminal justice in Baltimore, Maryland. She also helped to introduce structural reforms to the Baltimore Police Department. And both panelists joined me via Microsoft Teams. Well, Chuck Wexler, let me begin with you. Almost three years ago, the world watched in horror as white Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on the neck of George Floyd, 46-year-old African-American, for nine minutes and 29 seconds, resulting in Floyd's death. Is this time with Tyree Nichols' killing different in your view? Could it trigger reform at both the federal and state level? I mean, I think there are two different incidents and they have two different aspects to them. With Mr. Nichols' death, everything that was done by Memphis police was, cops are not trained that way. So, I mean, there's just a multiple of problems with how they handled this individual. It was a traffic stop and it just escalated. The police in this situation escalated for reasons none of us can understand, gave conflicting orders, didn't communicate, didn't render first aid. There was no force that I could see that Nichols engaged in that would warrant any form of use of force 
by Memphis police officers. So it's hard to even talk about it because it's so astonishing because American police know better than that. And this was a specialized unit. There was no supervisor there. There was no one who intervened. There was no one who rendered first aid. There was no de-escalating themselves. Mr. Nichols was compliant. The officers, it was almost as though they were seeing something different than anyone saw. This is a traffic stop and pulling him out of the car and gunpoint and tasing him and pepper spray and batons and fists. I mean, you would have thought that they were stopping the Boston bomber, not just someone engaging in, we don't even know what he did. This is a sad day, and hopefully there will be lessons from this about how to prevent something like this in the future. But their actions were criminal. Well, turning to you, Ganesha Martin, there's no question that this seemed extremely egregious, even though we're seeing in America, even after the death of George Floyd, a continuation of police violence against Americans, particularly African-Americans, particularly black men. Where do you place this particular egregious killing of Tyree Nichols within the American spectrum of police brutality? So first of all, I agree with everything that Chuck said. And so in some ways, it makes that easy to distinguish because it appears that from the very beginning, the training protocols were not followed. I will say, I have not watched the video. I got word of the video about a week and a half before the rest of the world did. And I had several people who had seen it or had heard about it describe it to me. And part of this work that we do is we see these videos and we hear about these things constantly. But even the description of what I was told and the picture that I saw of him, I could picture what those officers did to him in order to create those type of injuries. And I spent a whole weekend crying. This particular event hit me because to Chuck's point, sometimes you can sit and you can dissect and you can say, well, they were using this tactic and they could have been confused about this. And was their hand going for a gun? There was none of that. It was literally, you beat a man to death. And I have to say, it hit a different way for me to know that men beat a man that looked just like them, looked just like their brother, their uncle, their family member to death. Just even the fact that we're talking about your question says the spectrum of police brutality in America just speaks to the continued trauma for Americans, people of color, and police officers. This makes a job that was already very difficult, more difficult in a time where we don't have enough police officers on the street. And when I talk about my reaction to this, my tears, my trauma, this heightens people of color's fear of police. Again, not watching the video, but talking to folks about it, talking to a chief about it. I said, I bet you at some point, he said, these people are going to kill me. I have to run. I have to get away to save my life. And so again, these incidents continue to create those tensions in those interactions where you might have people of color who instead of thinking they're getting stopped just because of a traffic stop, they're now thinking I'm going to die, which heightens their furtive movements, that heightens all these things that put police on alert that there may be an officer safety issue. So there's a lot of different issues that have to come out. And the last thing I'll say is, as we're talking about this, you can see the nuance and people want to address these issues in sound bites, and they're not that simple. And so we've got to take the time to do what's right for police and community in these moments so that where we go from here actually helps and doesn't harm. 
So back to you, Chuck Wexler, you have a lot of experience overseas in many different countries, but I think we can all agree that policing in America is very different. Our police officers are mostly armed, unlike in some countries like the UK. We have what some analysts call a warrior model as opposed to more of a guardian model. After 9-11, police became much more militarized here in the United States. So with that, let me go back to a point that Ganesha made regarding the fact that these officers, Memphis police officers, were black, their victim was black. What this does, some analysts say, is that it shows police culture in general, regardless of the race of the police officer. And what we see, though, is that the victim is usually a person of color and a black man in particular, and at these traffic stops. So with that, to what extent do you think the killing of Tyree Nichols speaks to police culture in general in America? And what are some steps right now before we get into any potential legislation that can be taken or can it be done? Because as we know, policing in America is also very much a responsibility at the state level. Here's how American policing is different from policing internationally. No country has 18,000 police departments. 80% of them are 50 officers or less. We have no national standards, no national training and no national selection process. It's all very random. So it's very decentralized. Look, people would say, how is this possible? These are black officers beating up a black suspect. How can that happen? And I think race is an issue in policing, but character is an issue in who you hire. So the answer to better policing isn't simply diversity by itself. It's diversity and also getting quality candidates, whether they be black or white. And we don't want to just pick anyone that comes in the door. Diversity is important, but like whether we're talking about black or white officers or Asian or whatever, selection is very important and how they're trained and how they're supervised. Look, this was a specialized unit that was going after violent offenders and dealing with traffic issues. And there was no sergeant that showed up at the scene. So there are bigger issues that I see in this situation. Two concepts, which I think if I was a police chief today, I'd focus on would be three concepts. One is supervision. Someone is there. And with that supervision comes the concept of duty to intervene. Goes back to Rodney King 30 years ago. There was a sergeant there. He didn't intervene. In this case, police departments need to think, if we have a situation like that, how will you overcome the peer pressure to do something? Same thing with duty to render first aid. Once it's over and he's in custody, then they should be pivoting to help this individual. That didn't happen. How would you do that? I would focus in the department on first-line supervision. That is the area in the department I think you can make the biggest difference. Had there been someone there, you would have held them responsible for doing all the things I just said. But I think changing police culture is something that we've been struggling with for a long time. I will tell you on the positive side, One of the ways we've seen police culture change is how we deal with diffusing incidents that involve people without guns who have knives and are in crisis. And that is our training we've developed, integrating communication assessment and tactics. Not only does that teach police officers how to diffuse situations, and I'm not saying it would have been relevant in this situation, although when I think about these police officers, they needed to be de-escalated. They had ramped themselves up into a frenzy for reasons no one can understand. But there should have been a grown-up that said, hey, time out. What do we have here? We've got this individual. He's not even fighting. 
what do we got? Let's tow his car and let him go home, for God's sakes. I just can't understand that. My point is, if you want to change a police department's culture, start with the use of force issue. And I see that in different departments. I see that in Camden, one of the first departments to implement ICAP. Baltimore, one of the first departments. Louisville, put aside Breonna Taylor. That was a horrible incident. The department now has reduced overall use of force and injuries to officers and suspects. That helps to strengthen the internal way that cops see their job and see the community. They don't see the community as the enemy. They see the community as to work with, especially in a crisis. So changing police culture is challenging. It's like changing the culture of any occupation, lawyers, doctors. And there isn't one police culture. Some cultures are more toxic than others. Clearly, this specialized unit was off the rails in terms of how they viewed their job. Ganesha Martin, there's no question that this horrific killing raises more questions. And it seems like this particular incident is an outlier among many incidents which are also representative of misconduct and excessive use of force. But given that our system in this country is so decentralized, as Chuck said, you know, 18,000 different departments, to what extent can national legislation such as the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was unfortunately not passed and which is being resurrected, to what extent could that make a contribution to preventing this type of behavior from law enforcement? Are some of the measures that Chuck mentioned, are they subsumed under this law? You know, unfortunately, to Chuck's point with the decentralization of the 18,000 police departments, the federal government has a very limited ability to affect on the ground practices beyond suing them and things like consent decrees and those sorts of measures. It's really a carrot and stick type of approach here where you can encourage a local police department vis-a-vis grant opportunities and funding opportunities to try to comply. But otherwise, it's a very difficult proposition. On the flip side, I will say that the positives here is generally at the national level, when it's done right, you're bringing together experts like Chuck, folks from the community, advocates, you're bringing together a diverse group of people to come up with national standards. And so I can tell you, there's a lot of police departments that really just kind of operate in a bubble and don't push themselves to best practices or don't know how to access best practices. And so one of the things that could happen with the passage of that legislation is that there's then an example of what should be done on the local level. One of the pieces, if it were to stay in the legislation, was accreditation. And accreditation can be helpful. The accreditation was supposed to be based on, you know, 21st century policing standards, President Obama's report, and hopefully things that have been learned since then. So again, it can be a guide, but at the end of the day, my three-part mantra that I go by is you've got to have quality policy, then you've got to have quality scenario-based, evidence-based training that actually speaks to what officers are encountering on the street. But then you have to have accountability. And that's where a lot of people fall short. There's new technology out there. Early intervention systems have been talked about, and that's a technological response that gives red flags based upon criteria of officers. The downside of that is, and generally in a paramilitary organization, you do what I say and don't ask questions. So we don't have a lot of supervisors, to Chuck's point, supervision is so important. You don't have a lot of supervisors that know how to 
have those critical conversations once the flags come up. And so there's still work. There's some great stuff out there, but there's still a lot of work to be done. I just heard a police reform activist saying, we've given billions of dollars for training. What else do you want to be done? And I hear and I sense that frustration, but I'm on the ground in a lot of police departments. And back to Chuck's point, the training is all over the map. There's folks that are still using stuff from 20 years ago with no accountability. So the legislation is a great start, but we have to have a lot more that pushes us towards best practices and making sure that we're holding departments accountable for living up to those best standards. You are listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Our guests are Chuck Wexler. He's executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum. That's a Washington-based organization of law enforcement officials. And Ganesha Martin, a police reform expert with extensive experience in police reform and restructuring efforts in the city of Baltimore. And we are discussing the fallout from the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, at the hands of police officers, and to what extent it could be a catalyst for vital police reform and accountability in America. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Well, here's a shout out to a recent Facebook fan, Ahmad Bakshawan from Lahore, Pakistan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our program about police reform in America and turning to you, Chuck Wexler. Speaking of accountability, that raises a couple of questions, and that is one which is within the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Many analysts say that the concept of qualified immunity has been a sticking point. I would like you to address that concept and why is it controversial? Could it make a difference if it were eliminated? I can answer that really quickly. I don't think these officers were thinking thinking about responsibility of being sued or anything. I don't know what they were thinking. If you think qualified immunity somehow would be a panacea that, oh, well, we better not beat this guy up because we might get sued. They're going to get sued anyways. The department is going to get sued. They're going to pay an enormous fee. These officers will go to jail. I think the qualified immunity issue is an important issue, but if I had to pick the five issues that I would focus on to reduce these officers' actions, those probably wouldn't be in the top five. It, it would be like getting them well-trained, getting them held accountable, reviewing body-worn camera videos, getting a supervisor there, not hiring them in the first place if they had any indicators of this. That's what I'd be focusing on. Well, that was the sticking point in passing the bill. So what you're saying is that if that doesn't enter into the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, what you're saying is we should pass it anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, we come up with these issues that somehow will divide, you know, the unions and everything and they won't want it. And then they don't pass the whole bill because of one of these things. Qualified immunity is an important concept. But at the end of the day, I want to stop that violence from happening to Tyree Nichols. I don't want to hire cops that do that. I want to hold them accountable. I want someone supervising them. I want someone intervening. That's what needs to be done to stop this. Let me turn now to Ganesha Martin for your take on this issue. Qualified immunity, basically, it's, of course, the rule that shields law enforcement from liability in civil suits unless accusers can prove that allegations amount to a violation of constitutional rights. This is a hurdle. So let's speak to that. Is that an obstacle in your view to getting federal legislation passed? Understanding that federal legislation is not going to be a panacea, but
but still right. a step in the right direction. You know, I think that one of the issues that happens in policing and police reform is we always talk as an either or. And so this issue has so much nuance to it. And unfortunately, because of the police killings we've seen, historic issues that cause mistrust, distrust, it's hard for people to see each other in this. And so when it comes to qualified immunity, I completely understand why it's a sticking point for the police officers community. But if we were having to look at the table and say, can we put qualified immunity to the side for the purposes of passing the larger legislation? I would say we need to. There is no police officers union in the United States that I know of that would ever agree qualified immunity being put into the legislation. And so you're going to risk the whole legislation for that sticking point. And Republicans are not going to go for it. They're just not. Your most liberal, progressive, whatever you want to close to the middle, Republican is not going to go for it. So I think it's going to continue to hold us back. And so I would let it go for this particular legislation, but never necessarily give up on it. I do agree, though, with Chuck in the sense that in the murder of Tyree and a lot of other instances, these police officers are not thinking about if criminal prosecution doesn't scare you enough. I don't know that civil litigation is. And Chuck uh, Wexler, before I let you go, I have a question about what appears to be an overuse of traffic stops or expired license plates or broken lights. Oftentimes these are being used in more often than not cases that result in injury or death with mostly black motorists. Why can't we do something about that, about eliminating this pretext of stopping mostly black motorists? given some sort of expired license plate or whatever, these incidents often escalate into violent confrontations. That's an absolutely fair question. There's a whole concern with pretext stops, stopping someone merely because they have a taillight out or something. Look, those specialized units are there because there's an increase in violent crime. They need to be well supervised. They need to be focused on preventing the next shooting. That's what they should be focused on and preventing the next robbery or getting a gun off the street. There's ways to do that. And Ganesha is really smart about this. Constitutional ways that you can deal with crime in a certain area to be involved in prevention. You know, someone shoots someone else and identifying who their associates are and getting to them so that they don't take things into their own hands so you prevent another shooting. I'm all in favor of that, but I totally get your pretext stop question. And I think you have to watch that. I mean, I know in Los Angeles, that was an issue. And what they said is there has to be something more justification than simply the tail light out. So turning back to you for the last word, Ganesha Martin, just quickly, let me ask you, are you in any way optimistic that at the end of the day, especially with this brutal killing of Tyree Nichols, that we can reform police culture in this country once and for all? Like I said, I cried for an entire weekend, still find myself having nightmares and question myself, what are you doing in this work? Are you really making a difference reviewing policies and the things that you're doing? And the last time I had this crisis of conscience 
was the murder of George Floyd. And so I continue to ask myself, what role am I going to play in pushing this forward? And where I've come to just recently is the system, the way that it is set up right now, does not encourage the best of us as human beings. And we also can't just look at policing in a microcosm. We're living in one of the most divided times in our country where race, gender, identity are utilized in politics and all different aspects to divide us. And so the police have traditionally been the football in the middle. And so we've got to continue to work towards a better America, period, because our police are just a microcosm of that. But I will say at the end of the day, I do believe that things can get better. But the only way that's going to happen is if we come out of our corners and we start fighting back and we come together collectively to say what we really all want is just a safe community, a safe world. And what are the things in addition to policing that we can add to that? How do we reimagine public safety to use a trite and overused phrase? But the short answer is yes, I do have hope that we can get this right. But also, we can't just only talk about it after a murder. We have to use the catalyst of life and do these things every day. Well, on that cautiously optimistic note, that is all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Chuck Wexler. He's executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum and Ganesha Martin. She's a police and public safety reform expert. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.